0: Welcome to Neo-Academia, where the walls of the ivory tower are shifting. I'm your host, Natasha Mott, and this week I explored the psychology of social media with Steve Rathja. Steve is a postdoctoral fellow at NYU in the Social Identity and Morality Lab of Jay Van Bavel. His research centers on social media, polarization, and his own TikTok account has over a million followers. Steve is an author on a number of research articles and a co-PI on several grants he's also a contributor to psychology today. Neo-academia is possible first and foremost because of you. I appreciate your support. And if you love what we're doing here, head over to theorygang.io forward slash newsletter for behind the scenes footage and bonus content. Thank you for sharing your most valuable resource, your attention. And if you're interested in making better use of your attention, I got you. Neoacademia is also possible through support from Redocracy. Redocracy is on a mission to save the internet by making how we inform ourselves matter. So they've created a first of its kind technology that rewards people for consuming high quality content. Redocracy makes the content you consume cadges, LinkedIn upgrades, and insights into your information diet. These insights are like a Fitbit for your mind. They can help you understand how your information diet is affecting how you think and feel. Readocracy has won awards and backing from Mozilla and Betaworks and is used by curious minds at Stripe, Cisco, Zoom, and over 30 other top companies and schools. Neo-Academia is proud to be sponsored by Readocracy and has a series of collections curated by me and each of our guests on Readocracy.com. And for access to the Neo-Academia resource collections, head over to theorygang.io forward slash newsletter for this episode's show notes. Now let's explore. I found you on TikTok, but you're actually an academic and a TikToker, which I have found to be exceedingly rare in terms of the academics that actually I think have... What you would call like standard success on tiktok
1: yeah i've been actually trying to persuade more academics to get on tiktok because there was the whole thing when elon musk purchased twitter all the academics were sort of like leaving twitter and being like what social media platform should we join in i was like tiktok like i think that like tiktok is such a great way to have science reach people from all around the world who might not have been exposed to science or psychology ever before in their life just reach a completely different audience i find that twitter which academics really like you often reach other academics and you also reach journalists there are a lot of journalists on twitter or you reach like college educated liberals there's a certain type of audience on twitter but tiktok has such a broad audience and i don't know why a lot of academics do seem sort of averse to tiktok i think there's this perception that it's sort of like a a young app like that it's a gen z app but there are stats that show that a large percentage it might have been as high as 50 percent are like over 30 on tiktok like just a lot of people use tiktok now it's 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 big and there's also some of the stigma surrounding like the conversations about banning tiktok and china and privacy and everything and like i understand that as well i think it's complicated i think there are privacy issues with a lot of social media apps but but yeah i wish it's something more academics would do and broadly and i mean i think you're probably interested in this as well i think academics should engage more in science communication like they should be Sharing their taxpayer-funded research with the general public who pays for their research.
0: I think I'm going to make like a remix track of this podcast of all the people that have come on and said that, <laughs> like a broken record. But so I have my hypotheses about why academics don't go on TikTok. And I think if you've been on TikTok for a while, it can feel a little bit lowbrow. And oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's yeah. You know the big bulk of my hypothesis. It's probably not the big bulk of the reason, but it's the thing I'm most interested in. And then I would say also because it's hard. Tani Burlo came on here and she said you have to not give a shit to go on TikTok. You have to really just be okay with looking like an absolute fool.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. The algorithms on TikTok can be really mean. Like they can just be completely harsh. The thing is, I've had some success on TikTok, but I've published nearly like 200 videos at this point, and only about like you know, 10 of those have gone really viral and done really well. The majority of my videos like flop, as we call it. Like they they don't yeah. get seen. I mean, I have enough of a following that like a lot of my videos get seen by a fair amount of people, but I think a lot of people try TikTok out and they make one video and that one video doesn't do so well. So then they get discouraged. When I started this TikTok, I posted like three videos the first day I started and I was like, hopefully one of these will succeed. And I was lucky enough that one of the three got like 100,000 views and then the other two didn't do so well and maybe if I didn't have that early success I wouldn't have been encouraged to keep going but I think it's sometimes discouraging that like I try to post really consistently but yeah usually I'm stuck with like you know the same follower count I'm not growing and then I'll just like post 10 or 20 videos and they all won't do like so well and then after posting a bunch you eventually get a hit so i think that's quite frustrating for a lot of people to deal with so if you just have that mindset the not giving a shit mindset just like not not caring and realizing that these algorithms are really harsh and they're just based on watch time and it's really hard to game what is going to make people watch a video i can't predict ahead of time whether a video will succeed i'm actually currently running an experiment with myself where i like predict before i post a video How many views I think the video is going to get. Like I will predict its predicted number of views, and I'm going to do run correlations between my predicted view counts and my actual view counts. And I've done this for about like 32 videos now, and I think I I haven't run the numbers for a while yet. But I think what I'm seeing is basically it's really hard to for me to predict (laughs) success.
0: It's humbling, and I think a lot of academics. Well, first of all, I think they need to be humbled, but I think they. Don't want to be humbled. They, I really think they have like a very fragile ego a lot of times. And I don't want to say all of them, <laughs> but I think yeah, you know which ones. Like there's a certain <laughs> yeah. band. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: No, I, I know what you're talking about.
0: It's the same ones who take everything so seriously, and nothing outside of peer-reviewed publication is is worth a shit. It's what I think of as like the academic NPC. You know what I'm Lol. saying.
1: <laughs> the academic NPC, wow. Yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. And it's a phenomenon I guess I've seen in academia that's a bit frustrating, is I think as academics get older and as as they get tenured or as they get higher up the career ladder, they become a bit more defensive about like protecting their pet theory- theories or protecting their prior research. What I see with a lot of younger academics and PhDs and postdocs, which kind of makes me a bit more hopeful, Although maybe they'll change once they get older, as they often seem like more open to new theories and new ideas and new ways of doing things. But there definitely is sort of this old guard I see in academia, which also tends to be the kind of academics who might have more of a stigma against science communication. Although it's interesting, a lot of the academics I work with, like my advisors, they're really passionate about science communication. They really care about that stuff. It's mostly like advice I see from other academics. Like I'm I'm applying to professorship positions now and probably over the next few years while I'm a postdoc. And one piece of advice I've seen is like, don't emphasize your science communication too much. Make sure you emphasize your like peer reviewed work. And, and I'm, tr- I'm trying to do that. And it's true that like, even though like I'm passionate about TikTok and I'm passionate about science communication, I try to really like make the science first, both in my career and in my applications. But it's a bit tricky to cross that line where like yeah i, I do want to talk about in my teaching statement how like i i make these science tiktoks and the shows like that i have you know strengths as a teacher that might be transferable to the classroom when i'm a professor but i also don't want to seem like oh i'm just like an unserious influencer and i don't want sort of that stigma of being an influencer to affect me but but yeah again i i really don't see this quite as much in younger academics i feel like younger academics sort of understand social media and are becoming more passionate about science communication so
0: yeah i'm hopeful when you say younger academics though you mean not the professoriate you mean the pre-professoriate yes. the ones who have yet to be culled let's let's say <laughs>
1: I guess that's true yeah and who knows maybe they'll be selected out of the field or something maybe they'll well, leave academia and they'll be i mean you're gonna get a job
0: you know i saw i was like looking at your cv what did Hopefully. i say okay, let me pull it yeah no you're gonna get a job i was looking at your cv and you just started your postdoc though you're already looking for jobs is that in psychology i don't know how it works but i also noticed how many publications you had this year after just starting your fucking postdoc and like what the hell because for me you that don't happen like in biomedical science it's like you don't get a pub to like four years into your postdoc
1: oh i didn't realize you were in bi- biomedical sciences so yeah. wait do you did you do anything psychology leaning or was it mostly was no, it, was it molecular. Mostly biological oh okay wow yeah i think the publishing norms are a bit faster in psychology it's also a little bit like it can sometimes be lab dependent and if you do a lot of collaborations and also if you're doing things like analyzing existing data i analyze a lot of existing social media data you can sometimes publish a bit faster so it's definitely Um, like lab dependent and also like i basically did a soft launch on the job market this year like i submitted some applications and i'm still submitting some but i don't really you know expect to have a i didn't apply to many and i don't expect to have like a job come through very soon i am still very young and it was mostly sort of a practice year to get my like materials in order and my advisors sort of encouraged me to try that out so oftentimes it takes people like you know four years or something before they can yeah. find a good job so i'd be like perfectly happy okay. if i was like post for a while i'm still pretty young i did it like a short phd as well because it was at cambridge so it was just like four years so i still feel like you know, a few years of post would yeah. benefit me, and I don't mind if I do a couple post-docs or, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think with each field, each path into academia from whatever sector, there are certain norms, and I think of it as kind of an assembly line. You have to be packaged and primped and prepped, and you have mm-hmm. to get these many publications in these journals and work with, like, this pedigree, and there's all these kind of things that have to happen along the assembly line. and. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I mean, you have some very high level publications, at least, I mean, science, nature, PNAS this year. Like, you'll get a job, period. Thank um, you. Well,
1: I mean, it was nature, human behavior, and science advances. So, it's, you know, it's not the nature, nature, science, science. But, but thank you. No. Yeah. I mean, I feel like last year I did, I, I did feel quite lucky. I did feel like I had a good year in terms of my publications were accepted at journals I didn't think they would be accepted at. So, yeah, and I think that sometimes there is—I mean, it's obviously like a mix of luck and skill, but there can be a lot of luck in terms of like, are you the specific fit for this specific journal? But it's tough. There's a huge like hidden curriculum in academia. It's very—it's it's hard to know like yeah. what is the track record to getting a job. I never really know if I'm like doing anything right. I—I'm lucky that I think I've had some good mentors to to guide me, and then there's so much variability in what schools expect in terms of getting a job it's like a matter of fit and fit in terms of what you study i also think i have some potential risks i study social media which is often not considered something that's part of human behavior and human psychology and a lot of like people aren't necessarily open to someone who just studies social media so i never know did i take a risk in studying that it might be a good risk because i do truly believe social media is like growing so rapidly in transforming the world and i think it is just like something that will be like a hugely growing area of study in psychology but yeah it's it's really hard to know it's something where like i would love to have an academic job and be a professor my like ideal career would be to do something like my advisors jayvon Bavel, who's my postdoc advisor and Sandra vander linden my phd advisor they're both like active academics and then they also write books and they write articles and they communicate their science to the public i would love to do something like that in my career that's my ideal but i certainly have like a lot of backup plans i would be willing to go into
0: really industry
1: jobs if there isn't a good fit i feel like you have to have a backup plan
0: i guess you do but i i mean i didn't i was like dead set on being an academic and then okay the problem is when i when i left my phd lab I, I wanted to go to a certain postdoc and it didn't work out. So I kind of took mm-hmm. the backup postdoc. And so I was okay. already like, mm-hmm. oh, we're done now. <laughs> it ain't mm-hmm. going to work out. So I think there's that level too. But if you are relatively unattached and you can go anywhere, you have a much better chance of kind of seating somewhere, I think. So you were at Stanford.
1: Stanford for undergrad, Cambridge PhD, okay. NYU postdoc. But yeah, I mean, ideally, I'd be at, like, a research-focused university as opposed to teaching-focused. I love teaching, but research is, like, what I'm, like, very passionate about. And I don't have huge location restrictions, but obviously preferences in terms of living by the coasts or, like, a big city and stuff. So Client sometimes when you take those into...
0: That fake bill.
1: just, like... The rest of our our field and and there's some great non-academic research jobs oftentimes those jobs were like in meta and twitter until they like fired all the academics working in those companies but there there were some like are some like great alternative academic jobs where people research things like misinformation
0: so you said like the hidden curriculum and i i forgot about this term but yes it's a real thing and i think a lot of people listen to my podcast aren't academics So they're kind of looking at academia, like, what the hell goes on inside that black box? And the hidden curriculum, I think, is a big thing. So maybe you could, like, pick a couple things that you think are, like, secret. I think the
1: absolute most important thing you can do in going into academia, like, no question, is choosing, like, the right advisor and the right lab. And... I faced a few challenges in this when I, like, went to Cambridge. So I I went into my PhD at Cambridge right after I graduated from Stanford, and it, it was through, like, the Gates Cambridge Scholarship, and I was initially going to do a master's, but then an advisor encouraged me to switch it to a PhD, so I went into a PhD much more quickly than I anticipated, and I was with an advisor who was, like, not the right fit for me. And I think if you are with an advisor who doesn't fit, then I I think that that just, like, hurts your chances of doing. Like, more than anything. Yes, more than anything. I think it's the most important thing. And also, yeah, publishing good research about things that you care about. And luckily, I was able to, at least relatively quickly, switch to an advisor who I really, really liked and who I really clicked with about a year into my PhD, but the first year was still, I was figuring things out. So I would say oftentimes people who have a bad experience with academia, which is a lot of people, they didn't like their experience. They left the field of academia. I think most of the variance in that is explained by like having an advisor who was not the right fit. And I also think it's really hard to be a good advisor. I would, I think the majority of advisors in academia are not very good and then when you find the one yeah there's some like great people and great researchers who are bad advisors it's just like it's a different skill and it doesn't necessarily make you like a bad person i think it's just really hard to be like a good advisor so i i was just very lucky that i was able to switch to an advisor and to a lab that i really liked jayvon babel my current postdoc advisor i was already working with him through like a lot of my phd i visited his lab i got to know people in his lab and that was really good and when you're in productive lab environments with a surrounded by a lot of good students and led by a good advisor that's where you start to learn like the, the hidden yeah. curriculum you you start to learn all these things yeah. and yeah i don't know i i just made so many mistakes early on and sometimes i had like postdocs or other grad students or advisors who kind of nudged me in the right direction i just i wish yeah. we were like more straightforward with this stuff because i think it just like It'd be you can't be because Um, it's about
0: gatekeeping and it's it's i mean i don't want to say it's not like that outside as well because a lot of it is like a filtration process just the entire world is hierarchical like that i'm dealing with like a health insurance thing and i'm like oh they're trying to basically see how many people they can get to not get this procedure you know it's everything is a filtration process but one thing i was thinking is that in this neo-academic world i'm imagining in my mind which i think is a fun exercise to do but hopefully becomes a reality there's gotta be a a little bit of like a distribution of activities you're kind of superhuman in that you're going to do research and you're going to teach and you're going to do tiktok and all that stuff like that's not real that's like that's a you thing that's like elon musk being like oh everybody can start a car company like no not everybody can do that you're very special but the reality is that you're going to have people that are excellent at research and you're going to have people who are excellent at outreach and excellent at communication Mm. and right now there's no system to reward or incentivize that so we're going to have to share play nice (laughs) you know yeah
1: no i mean i think one of the major things that's not incentivized like related to that is like yeah good good mentorship professors are selected based on the quality and output of their research and they could be they could be terrible mentors, but that stuff isn't, you know, evaluated when you're becoming a professor. But most of what you are when you're a professor is like a manager and a mentor. So I think that absolutely needs to be incentivized. And I I also think that academia would really benefit from a bit more of a flat hierarchy, like instead of the tall hierarchy where things are really just like based on the wishes of those on on top.
0: You mean like administrative? hierarchy like i meant if things were more flat
1: instead of more does my metaphor make sense more flat instead of like more vertical where things are really administered i'm just saying academia would benefit if it were less hierarchical i feel like a phd student's career is based so much on their advisor i think your advisor can have complete power over a phd student and that's fine if you have a good advisor but that's not if you have a Bad advisor, and I think it would be better in terms of having a more meritocratic system, where talented people can succeed in all labs. If we didn't mm. have this like hierarchy, we also have this hierarchy in terms of some institutions and some professors get like so much funding, whereas others do not. And I like, yeah, I think we really do need to.
0: Equalize I see. It's a fat power curve distribution basically there's a ton of people with almost nothing and then like the top of the top gets everything basically yeah yeah agree with that i think one of the things that could potentially fix that is if professors weren't walking around their phd students like dogs which i feel like they do in a sense it's like this is my little pet that i gotta groom this pet and i gotta take care of this pet and i'm not saying like all of them do but i think there's a there's also a self Propagation aspect of this. So if you do well, your your professors do well. So I think that's a little bit of the corruption in it as well. That they want to steer you and and hold you in this direction that you have to kind of go in that. So I think there's right. danger in that as well. Yeah, it's interesting that
1: I feel like the more senior of an academic you become, the more like your career is just based on like recruiting good grad students and postdocs in your lab who are doing like the majority of the work and then it's based on a lot of the talent that you recruit i think it would be nice if it weren't based on that and we would like have more students working with like you know a diverse amount of collaborators and Uh also just like allowing their individual success to shine rather than being like branded as a part of a lab and um yeah again a lot of like People who are going into PhD programs don't know this. They don't know how much your choice of advisor matters for, like, the rest of your career. It's certainly something I didn't know early on.
0: Well, you only have one way of building reputation, mm-hmm. and that is through what you publish. And I think that mm-hmm. is part of the issue as well, that y- that's the only thing that really counts, truly. I mean, you're mm-hmm. the, the rest of the stuff you have to do, but it's not going to make or break you. And it's funny to me how academics kind of scoff at metrics and KPIs and all this stuff, which which are starting to make their way into academia, but they're much more in the corporate sphere. They kind of scoff at that, but yet they have their own system. Like, I, I noticed you have a score thing on your. Um, so oh, altmetric. Yeah. Oh, okay. Altmetric. Yeah. The H index. And mm-hmm. it's so don't don't come at me telling me, you know, oh, metrics don't really tell convey what I do. <laughs> it's like, you, well, then why do you keep relying on them?
1: Right. I mean, the metrics are all flawed, but I guess people need heuristics. And there's some (laughs) heuristics that work better than others, but something like people certainly do is they use like the journal that you publish in as a heuristic. If you publish in Nature as opposed to Plus One, people might assume like, oh, that might be like higher quality because like the editors and reviewers thought it was like higher quality and they might look at it just simply because we don't have time to like read all those papers. So I do somewhat understand using it as a heuristic. I think things like citation count or altmetric are worse heuristics because citation count might simply mean that you are, like… Sexy? Yeah, I mean, or that you're publishing in a field where a lot of people are publishing it. In some ways, like, my citation count has benefited from publishing on misinformation and social media because these are sort of hot topics that a lot of other academics are publishing on. If you're publishing on a less popular topic, but you're still doing, like, incredible work, you will have, like, a lower citation count, and then altmetric just measures media exposure which is like just like how clickbaity is your study how much did the media like your study so that's not that's not a great measure either
0: yeah i mean and i think the that what we were talking about about the kind of the hidden curriculum in finding your mentor the thing that they do is they teach you all of this stuff and they tell you unfortunately yes and you're you're in psychology so you understand heuristics but i you know, was in a molecular biology, so i I didn't even under I didn't even read like Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow till I left grads or till I left academia. You know, no, I hadn't opened my eyes to any of it. I was I uh-huh. didn't even I read nothing about the philosophy of science. I was just reading papers and papers and papers because that's part of the trick of getting ahead in academia is you have to drill into your subject area and there's all these tricks. But I will say this about academic mentorship. There's nothing like it. Like you'll never find when you have a good academic mentor, you'll never find anything like that because in the corporate world, your boss, sure, they want you to succeed, but there's also like a competitiveness, a sense that they don't want you to kind of like take their job. Whereas in the academic world, you're never going to take their job, but they want you to get your own. You know, so mm-hmm. then there's this battle of collaborating with them and carving out a niche a little bit more. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's a very interesting dynamic that should be lifelong. And I think it can be if you stay in academia. But that's one mm-hmm. thing I really, really miss about being in academia is that closeness with okay. someone who yeah. knows what they're doing and has, and has done this successfully. Yeah. And it's a track.
1: No, I I agree with you. I feel like it's one of those cases, like, if you find a good mentor, it's really good. And if you find a bad mentor, it's really bad in academia. Again, because they have so much sort of power and sway, I think that's kind of what amplifies that. So that's why I think, like, some people's perceptions of academia can be so polarized. And I feel like I've seen some of the very bad of it, and I've seen some of the very good. So, yeah, I mean, I am just grateful that I'm in, like, a positive situation right now and i recognize that a lot of people are not and i wish we could improve the situations
0: oh it's going to change it's just it's kind of like how how is it going to change it's kind of what i'm trying to figure out here is Mm -hmm. like how's it going to change and what can we do on the outside that's a little different than the big behemoth of academia itself how can we kind of massage things from the outside a little bit so that's kind of what i'm looking at but
1: i'm interested in your neo-academia approach because it's more like it seems more focused on changing things from the outside as opposed to the inside or are you trying to do a little bit of both as well
0: Um, i don't think so i think my approach and this is exploratory it's largely me just trying to figure it out and i think with the next season this is actually the last episode so you're closing out the first season yeah so i'll come back in a couple months but this was just like an exploration for me because okay. I always wanted to be an academic. And then when I kind yeah. of saw what it was like, I was like, oh, wait, no, this is not actually friendly for me. It's not the dream that I I thought Uh-oh. it would be. It's mm-hmm. not what it, it wasn't what I wanted. And I think with people who have like a wide variety of interests, that's it, it's not going to work for them because you and you have pretty diverse interests within your niche. But I'm certainly not going to be allowed to study physics very much. You know, I'm not Mm going to be allowed to study psychology. I'm a molecular biologist and I have to dig down into molecular biology. So with neoacademia, what I think I'm doing is exploring all different facets of what's going on inside and finding people who are really still genuinely curious. I think a lot of people are dead inside. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Seriously. and trying to find people who have a spark still to to make things better and incorporate changes that we all agree need to happen like for example science communication we all agree but yet there's like nobody really making a concerted effort to like force the universities to use some of that money to do it properly yeah like no one's doing that so that's kind of the things that i'm exploring here
1: I love that. Yeah. Well, and also
0: another thing I want to do, another branch I might start with the next season is just getting people like you who do research mm-hmm. and who want exposure, in a sense, to come on and talk about their research. Because the more that I dig in, in TikTok, I see, like, there's a ton of people, actually, who are trying to get exposure. They're just not. Right. They ain't They ain't getting it yeah. yet. So.
1: Yeah, you have to do all sorts of tricks to get exposure through TikTok. You so to, let's
0: talk about your TikTok, you know, by the way. Yeah. The psychology of your TikTok. Like, first of all, mm-hmm. it's a brand. It if it, it's a brand. I don't yeah, know if you I guess. know it's a brand, but it's a brand.
1: Steve psychology, Dr. Steve. Yeah. No, I it's it's certainly a brand. I think I'd try to like maintain a an, like a niche. I, I sort of advice that a lot of people give you on TikTok is like Have a niche so that people like when they follow you they have a reason to follow you they kind of know what to expect they know like oh i'm you do psychology videos i'm interested in psychology i'll follow you for more psychology videos so i feel like if i went all over the place and i was like this is my life these are my hot takes about celebrities and stuff then people would be like why am i following you and they they wouldn't engage i used to have a tiktok for six months that was just me posting about random things before i like started steve psychology and then like after that i very intentionally was like okay i'm gonna make like a psychology tiktok account and it of course grew like much more fast than my other account that had like you know, 600 followers because it was just me posting random things. So, yeah, no, I certainly agree. It's a brand. And then the psychology of it I mean, the part of why I study in my research is actually the psychology of like what goes viral on the internet. Like, that's it huge question i'm really interested in and i think it's a really important question because the things that go viral online are the things that end up being seen by most people we live in an attention economy and the algorithms choose to show people what they watch the most what they engage with the most and i mean a lot of my research isn't that positive it's shown things like if we dunk on a member of our out group or if we post something that it's highly negative or contains moral outrage it's more likely to go viral so it's like you know, outragement leads to engagement. It's sort of that kind of motto. Oftentimes it can be like negative stuff or stuff that feeds into some very basic emotions that go viral.
0: But But the irony is you don't do that. You're the most, like I was, I watched, I watched quite a bunch of them in like in a row. And the one thing I think, I mean, your brand is very neutral. Your brand is a bit formal. It's, you know, you have a tone when you speak and you can tell you choose your words carefully but i i was so glad when i saw that you had so many followers because i'm like this is really chill like it's pretty it's it's (laughs) i think a great start for people to see that it doesn't have to all be polarizing
1: yeah no i i appreciate that but sometimes videos that do well on psychology tiktok are if you like fact check someone there's a lot of ridiculous psychology misinformation on the app and if you fact check someone Or if you respond to a hate comment in a kind of sassy way, that will get more engagement. And I think people are like, ooh, drama, they're, like, feuding. And I really try not to lean into that as too much. Sometimes I've done it, I've tried, I've never tried to get, like, too intense. But, yeah, I mean, I think what has been nice for me, and I think also good for, like, my mental health, is I do keep my brand, as you say, like, a little bit neutral, and I try to really make the science come first. And I think that's good because, like, I think it can be stressful being a public figure and always, like, saying these are my hot takes and then having people comment on your personality and your opinions and your looks and everything. And people don't do that as much with me. They
0: mostly <laughs> Also called being a woman.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. And women face it, like, way more on the internet. But yeah, I mean, I face a lot of, like, anti-gay stuff on TikTok, especially, like, when I was like, here's some psychology studies related to lgbt things i didn't even say like i was gay but like i had just like some lgbt related science and i got like masses of people saying they were unfollowing me and i was like why were you following me in the first place like i don't i don't get this and it's because people from all around the world you know in a lot of places around the world are less accepting of gay people they follow me because like of some scientific study that is like pretty like universal and seems to like transcend like a lot of other things and it's sort of nice because like my account is often about content curation like I pick some of the best psychology studies that I think people will find most enjoyable and then there's the communication element I'm like how do I package this in the most interesting way but I think the content comes first like the study I'm sharing comes first and if I share an interesting study and I communicate it in, a, in a semi-interesting way usually the video will will do well and it's kind of nice like I feel like it becomes less about me and it's like I think I'm I've never been, like, some people ask, have you been, like, recognized walking down the streets of New York from your TikTok? And I'm like, you know, that's never happened. Standard happening. white I guy. Think that's... <laughs> yeah, because I just look like a basic white guy. Yeah. But I think what happens is I think people pay less attention to me and they pay more attention to the science, which 100%. I kind of like. Because, like, I think I would get nervous if people were paying attention to me. I would, like, I get to keep some distance, and that's the thing that you get to have more as like an academic or a science communicator depending on how you communicate your science because people have different approaches but if you put less of yourself forward then people will pay attention more to the content and i think personally that's works best for me
0: yeah well i mean you're you're successful at it and i i just noticed it because i've watched several of your videos i feel like you always have like a format in a sense like you have something above your head which I think mm. also kind of distracts from, like, your visage, in a sense. And your the background is, like, this neutral color as well. <laughs> and y- you know who Lex Fridman is? I do, I mean, yeah. doesn't? It- it's like, yeah. he's so self-effacing. We talk about this all the time. And the reason why he gets such great guests is because they know he's not going to push back on him. He's also, like, a big-ass kisser, which annoys the shit out of me. Yeah. But it's <laughs> like, there's this brand of being, like, self-effacing in a sense so that... The topic or the person or basically the thing that you're i don't want to say selling but yeah selling is is the highlight and not you i mean i think part
1: of what makes lex an interviewer people like is and i think this is also rogan as well is they just come across as like regular people who are like intellectually humble (laughs) and appeal to a lot of regular people and i know a lot of people criticize them for like their bad takes i personally like I'm critical of Rogan for his anti-vax misinformation and all of this that stuff, and I, I don't think I love them like as people or for their opinions, but I do think that they are good interviewers because they okay. ask kind of simple, intellectually humble questions that really just start at the basics. And yeah, yeah. I just I think people people like that. So,
0: do you know Huberman? Like you were at Stanford, you know Huberman. I do. Right? Yeah. No, I, I I like.
1: I mean, I listen to his podcast. And... I mean, I think he he's a great times communicator.
0: Yeah, I saw one of your people yeah. that I was like, Zaki as well. Like, I think you had a collaboration with. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Um, no, I, Zaki,
1: he, amazing.
0: Yeah, I, he was one of the people that I think I can't mm-hmm. remember when my giant like postdoc search. he was like, I was broadening to do. Actually, I ended up getting some constructs from the from the Diceroff lab for my postdoc. It's really into optogenetics, and so it's just it was kind of cool to see that like kind of cross back with you you're probably like the first person I've actually talked to in this format that the closest person to kind of like neuroscience and what I used to do so it was like mm. a little bit like coming home but okay pop- so
1: wait the stuff the stuff you were doing with like leaning more neuro were you considering Jamil yes. as like a post? I don't think that,
0: it's, not seriously I was just yeah. looking at what he does and and actually I worked in Chuck Roselli's lab at OHSU mm-hmm. and he was the guy who did The gay rams basically you don't remember this i don't actually
1: know it basically it was like
0: kind of like the the groundbreaking like being gay is biological study oh wow okay i think glad was upset that he was doing it and they teamed up with PETA and and like harassed him and you know how oregon is like you can't do shit and he was working on giant rams it was awful. It was part of the reason why I hated the lab. I was interested in the effective circuitry and wondering if there are differences between not only males and females, but also male-oriented, female-oriented, Ew. right? So Ew. so, anyways, that's what I was interested in. That sounds so that cool. I, I mean, yeah. I thought it was cool. I did not realize how fucking controversial it would be.
1: <laughs> yeah. Because
0: I, I, I too, it's... forget that people don't accept gay people. Like, I I forget.
1: I forget, too, I'm in New York and, like, I feel like, everyone i know is gay or bi or what or whatever you know it's yeah but that's so cool and that's interesting that like glad was like against sometimes i find there's this thing where like some of these like lgbt rights organizations will go against some like scientific paper about lgbt stuff that i think is like really interesting and helps contribute to our understanding of like why are people gay and like where does sexual orientation come from which i think would actually help people understand gay people and i think it would ultimately help overcome stigma right. we understood the science behind these things
0: this the problem though is the left is very it is anti science once you go far enough left they really are because they're afraid of it because what happens when you discover what the biological cause of gayness is what if there's a gene what if we can mm. cure it should we cure it then they're dealt with all these yeah. ethical questions and this was the problem with covid with the left is they they had to contend with ethical questions and meet that with science and and decide that science is not God, right? Like it's not, we can't base all of our ethical decisions on science. It's not the same thing, you know? There's, yeah. There's different types of truth. And I think when you go far enough left, you're like floating in the quantum realm a little bit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of these studies about like the effects of political ideology versus political extremism, I think one study shows, like, as you get farther right, you get more dogmatic, usually. But there's also a slight effect of, like, as you get to the extreme left, you get more dogmatic. And I think you definitely see more science denial on the right and on the extreme right. But I think you can also see effects of ideological extremism on both sides, so.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, you're, are you familiar with, like, Dan Kahan's work? Is it Kahan? Kahan at Yale?
1: yeah, no, I am familiar with his work. His work is interesting. My my former PhD advisor has debated a lot with him, and oh, I think really? Yeah, I mean, because he was one of the big he was one of the big people on motivated reasoning, and he basically argued that like the more like reflective and intelligent you become, the better you are at like justifying your beliefs and oh, like yeah. engaging in motivated reasoning. I my Sander Vander Linden, my former PhD advisor. I think he disagreed with that. And I think, that, like, as more studies are coming out, I think we're finding a little bit less evidence for that hypothesis. Like, generally, I think generally what researchers find is, like, reasoning is a good thing, basically. Mm -hmm. Like, reasoning and intelligence usually leads to more accurate beliefs. Mm -hmm. I think lawyers who are really intelligent can justify ridiculous things. But if you are, like, if you have an accuracy goal, if you're, like, a scientist, we should say scientists... For the most part, they're motivated by accuracy. Sometimes they have other motives. I uh-huh. think then you should usually use your reasoning to try to get closer to the
0: truth. You said should. Yeah. No. Will. I mean,
1: I I would say for the most part, science does a good job at that, but also has its flaws. I think it does better than better than journalism, better yeah. than law. My postdoc advisor, Jay Vardavil, has sort of argued that sort of the institutions and norms of science do help prevent against motivated reasoning we have a peer review process and a lot of people criticize peer review but i think it's like generally good to have like kind of contrarian experts like engage with debate about your research i think for the most part some form of peer review is good like we do have institutional norms and we have certain things that i think protect against making science like completely like devoid of accuracy and the way that like sometimes journalists or politicians and other people can sway the truth a bit more well
0: here's my issue with this and and i love that we're getting into this because this is the fun part for me so a lot of people in psychology like to talk about implicit bias but Mm -hmm. then i feel like they neglect the concept of implicit bias when it comes to things that they may be implicitly biased towards i mean so this is the Mm -hmm. problem with science in general we are the observer and the observing like this is Mm -hmm. the problem ultimately what that we're having with science when we try to look at ourselves but When you're talking about scientists and motivated reasoning, they are motivated to believe that they are motivated by reason. You know what I mean? They're not motivated. Yeah, that's true. That's fair. But also same thing with peer review. When the peer review system seems to work for you, then it's like, it's working. But also, there's a lot of things about peer review that absolutely suck. And one of those things is, you know, negative findings. You you don't get it published anywhere. It's like the Winston Churchill saying, you know, democracy sucks, you know, except when you think about anything other than democracy. I love my paraphrasing of Winston Churchill. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying to trash it. I'm just saying that we can't be so dogmatic and say this works and, like, we can't consider anything else. Yeah, I mean,
1: yeah, I certainly agree. And to check my biases, like, I am still in science. I might be biased to believe that science is good and reasonable and gets us close to the truth. And i've also had relatively positive experiences with peer review and i would say even with some of my like worst peer reviewers who have trashed my papers i've learned something from them so like i think feedback from as many people as possible who are educated experts is usually good there is corruption there are issues there are a lot of institutional failures i believe and i think scientists have a lot of individual biases. I mean, scientists like might have a pet theory and they might run studies that always support their pet theory. But then sometimes you have a different group of scientists who have a completely different theory and then they will argue with each other. And then through this debate, there will sometimes be like some truth that emerges. I've been involved in academic debates. I'm currently participating in adversarial collaboration, moderated by, like, the Center for Adversarial Collaborations, and me and some other scientists are collaborating with a competing team of scientists who have different hypotheses, and I think that, like, we have different beliefs, and we probably have different motivations based, uh, and we probably have motivated reasoning, but I think through some of these debates we can get closer to the truth. And, I mean, again, I'm not saying it's, like, perfect. This is, like, ideally how the system should work, so there should be some deliberation, there should be people who are checking their biases, institutions and a system that's checking biases. And sometimes that can fail, but from what I've seen, it's science seems to be doing a better job at getting toward the truth than other institutions and systems yeah. and think tanks. And
0: Oh, I places. agree. I agree a hundred percent. It's why I, It's why I still identify as a scientist because that's the best we got so far. It certainly works better than yeah. like consulting my crystals. Okay, so speaking of consulting crystals, so one thing I was thinking when I was listening to your TikToks is that you give these studies, you give a lovely overview, and I was thinking about what's next, you know, because you see all these things coming out about the creator economy and this is what mm-hmm. happened in 2022 and what happened in 2021, and I'm thinking, what's next in, like, 2025? You know, what where are we going to be in terms of creators? Because hopefully you'll have spelled out every single psychology experiment worth mentioning by then, but...
1: Oh no, I'll run out of material.
0: (laughs) No, but that's what I'm saying, like you won't because the things that I think are missing from TikTok especially is like that next layer of depth on almost everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, you gave out a study here, but like I was thinking about the problem with giving people information, like the Dunning-Kruger type effect that they're like armed with, you know, Mm. Stephen psychology's Mm -hmm. information about psychology. And I'm like a junior professor now. And, you know, they kind of fall into this trap of believing that they know a lot of shit. They know the top line of the the study and not all the debate around it. So I hope that's Uh net. Who knows
1: if TikTok's even around by then, given all the debates about banning TikTok? I do think that, like, short-form video is definitely growing. I think that, you know, social media started as text and then it moved to pictures with Instagram. And now it's on video. And I think people ultimately find video most engaging but it's true people are demanding long-form content more and people are saying that like video essays on youtube are becoming popular again and obviously podcasts have been popular for a while i love podcasts i love the long form getting in depth it's it's almost like instead of reading a book by an author i'll read their podcast interview and i'll be like okay i got it so like honestly Who knows, but I think we'll continue to see a rise of short-form video. I love long-form. I don't know if people have the attention span for it. Who knows, it'd be nice if we had some way to get the attention span back. We might have AI-created content pretty soon. We might have, like, ChatGBT and, like, all these, like, advances in AI creating content better than humans can create it. So I guess that's one prediction for the future. Yeah,
0: 100%. I saw Greg Eisenberg. I, well, I didn't even know who this was until today. I think he's like a YouTuber. I don't know where he came from, but he said, I was reading a Substack, and he said like, basically in 2023, you need to be super fucking unique. He didn't swear. Of course, that's me adding it, but because otherwise if AI, if AI can do it, they're going to do it better than you, more articulate, more whatever. So you better bring the juice. To you. kind of scary,
1: honestly. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I think TikTok is becoming more, competitive. I think when I started it in 2020, it was I think it was easier to like succeed. I, I think I, yeah. my videos were amplified a bit more. I'm seeing some growth on my account again, but like I go through long periods of stagnation. I think there are just more people on it. I think the creator economy was very hyped for a while, but I think the creator economy is actually dying a bit yeah. as a lot Wind of creators are realizing her. they can't make any money unless you're at the right. very top. Or if you're able to draw traffic to your business or do something very creative. You can, but, but a yeah, it's really hard to make money as a creator.
0: This is the problem I'm, I'm running into with like thinking about neo-academia because I've got all these little places where I can make money, but I'm like patchworking together a salary yeah. in a sense. Yeah. And yeah. most people cannot do that. Like there's a, you know, the patronage model and there's all these different models you can do. But the reason academia functions so well, it is be- partly because of the bureaucracy of it. And it, there's a track, you know. These are the places where mm-hmm. my great great grandfather academically got published and got grants from and he taught my academic daddy how to do this. And, you know, so like, I said academic daddy is that your <laughs> um,
1: what you call your academic advisor?
0: Academic daddy, that don't say that. I mean,
1: nepotism in academia is a thing. There's like a study showing that like twenty-five percent of professors had parents who like were in yep. academia it's just like
0: that's why it's so the, dry
1: yes one of the big keys to succeeding it's it's kind of like film and tv with nepo babies is yeah. like you need to have parents who are professors with some of the top performing academics you'll learn that their pro- parents were professors and that probably gave them a head start and learning the hidden curriculum and learning all sorts of things so academia is such a mystery to people outside of it like again i really had no idea about academia until partway through my phd it was so even at undergrad, yeah. it was so opaque.
0: It's eye-opening. I mean, when I when I was an undergrad, I think I had like a total switch. You know, I'm first in my family to go to college. And so when I walked onto the, mm-hmm. the campus, I, first of all, I was free. I'm like, I'm free. I have to work to support yeah. my ass. But I'm walking around and I'm sitting in the bookstore and I had a chai latte. And I opened my books and I'm like, I have four hours to read this book and learn shit. And that's, yes, yes. And yeah. so... I thought and then I went to class and there were all these wonderful conversations where I was just like feeding off these professors and then there was someone's like yeah you could probably do this for like a career and I'm like what and then so you go and get your PhD and then you realize oh no this is different (laughs) we're not frolicking through the flowers in the courtyard here
1: my time in undergrad was so idyllic especially like Stanford was like sunny palm trees beautiful campus and everything and just like psychology classes were so well taught and i was taking philosophy classes it was amazing and certainly that transition from learning to then the phd the difficulties of producing science which is so different because your day-to-day as like a phd student is like you're submitting ethics approvals or you're coding in R, or you're debugging so much of it is not really about the content or the knowledge about it's about the craft of creating science which is so hard and you're not thinking yes. about big ideas most of the time you're thinking about the very like nitty-gritty I mean, and what tiktok allows me to connect to is kind of that like joyous thing i had in college where i was learning so many things and i felt so inspired and like i get most of my content ideas maybe not most but a, a lot of them from like what i learned in college from those intrasite classes and stuff you know, the other stuff you know is from reading papers and Twitter and everything. That's where I get the other ideas. But yeah, I, I try to like, sometimes I sit down and I'm like, what What did I learn in my intro psych classes or intro philosophy classes? Oh, I'll well, make a TikTok about that. Cause those intro classes select like best, most engaging studies that last the test of time. And then those are the studies that do best on TikTok I've found are the classics.
0: Yeah. That's probably why my TikTok doesn't do well because that's not what I'm interested oh, you have a TikTok in. I do, I do. Oh, it's cool. all I over need the place. I to you. Well, okay, good. And then I'll, I'll tag you in something, but then I okay. need your advice for growing my brand because obviously I suck at it. Like I'm too, I'm the exact opposite of you. I'm like all personality. That's so right. it's like, it's 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 wrong. But, but that really
1: works for some people. Like, I don't
0: want it. I don't want it yeah. to work for me. And then I'm like all personality and then people like critique my personality and I'm like, no.
1: that That's what I hate. I hate the critiques of
0: my Right. But yeah. So here's what I like, My experience in grad school, the the juicy moments, because you're right, a lot of time it was pipette. For me, it's pipetting, it's editing, it's writing a grant, it's dealing with spreadsheets and reading some fucking manual for a god-awful piece of equipment and then troubleshooting the god-awful piece of equipment. It was awful, but the moments that were beautiful was like Journal Club. I remember I picked a Journal Club article about genetically modified corn, and I picked one about acupuncture. And everybody was pissed because our, our department was very interdisciplinary. It was cell biology, neurobiology, and anatomy. It was like the weirdest department. But everyone's like, really? We're, like, we're going to read about genetically modified corn? I was so excited because I'm like, I know nothing about this. And now I'm going to go down this awful rabbit hole. And, and the study turned out to be absolute bunk because it wasn't about corn at all. It was about the pesticide exposure. Every one of these articles that I did, it was just so fascinating, but this is why I think my TikTok doesn't do well, because I go down these crazy rabbit holes, very deep, very broad, and everyone's like, what the fuck (laughs) are you talking about now? Some
1: rabbit hole TikToks do well. Like, I I have someone, one of my mutuals, I forgot who, who talks about, like, blimps and how there are only, like, 25 blimps left in the United States, (laughs) and, like, just, like, Gives so much detail, and I found it so fascinating. And I think those are her most viral videos. They're about blimps, and I think that's just like so weird and quirky and such an interesting fact. Because like I feel like I've seen blimps, and it's weird that there are so few in the United States. So I think sometimes you can do well with like quirky and niche specific i mean i think what does well is sort of like novelty weirdness emotion okay. surprise things like that i have to be accurate and not clickbaity but like you right. also have to really simplify short simple fast things like that yeah that stuff's really hard and that's something academics are not really trained in doing is like communicating in a simple way and kind of started science communication before i like started academia like in college i was writing popular science articles for psychology today and the guardian and various places and i was learned that kind of writing before i learned academic writing and i think that was helpful for me because i was like okay i know before i even like kind of learned about the ropes of research i learned how to write psychology for public i think being a trained in science communication helps you as an academic. I think it helps you write better journal articles as well. As well, People who are communicating science to the general public tend to write much more readable journal articles, I
0: find. Oh yeah, they do. And this is where I think that academics could do well to be trained by people outside of what they're doing. Because I don't think that they should be completely separate jobs, but wouldn't it be cool if you had, like, a departmental science communication person? Why can't we have that? Where somebody knows your research intimately they only have about five labs that they study and and their job is to publicize that content i mean put it in your fucking fna for your grant like you should be able to do you know what i mean and then can you imagine like seeing your research actually put into those terms because like you know how it is to get a like a pr What's the word? a press release about about your work? You've probably had that happen, right? You've exciting <laughs> yeah. work. It doesn't happen very often in biology, but I remember yeah. we had one for this alcohol study we did, and everybody in the lab was like, "Oh my gosh, like real people are reading our stuff, and mm-hmm. you look at it and you go, "That's what we did." Oh, okay, yeah, I guess that yeah, that's stuff. <laughs> <good."> we <laughs> injected rats with alcohol and saw what happened to their h p a stress axis after puberty. And and then you read it in, in this other form and you're like, OK, you it, like it does something to you to realize that what you're doing can be put in other words. Yeah. Was,
1: was it a good press release? Because sometimes, like, yeah. press officers will misunderstand the science or they won't write about it. Yeah, it was good. Well, mm-hmm. that happened. OK, that's good. Yeah. When I I think I've only had one press release for a study at Cambridge and the press person was really good and kind of like worked with me and the other authors and we kind of like were like oh this is right and this is wrong and like we were able to sort of help edit him and it was awesome and he helped publicize that paper a lot and get a, like a lot of media attention so that was cool and yeah i totally i love your idea of having like science communicators who like work with academics
0: that should be a thing you know and i think it would be like good for the health of the university as yeah well.
1: yeah and in psychology too I, psychology is one of those fields where it has the most demand for science communication people are like i think there was a study that showed that of the types of science articles that are covered by the media that people share on like reddit most it's like psychology articles for one it's that people are interested in other people like just Innately, i think it's yeah no i think it's a bit harder for i guess like if you do molecular stuff or cell stuff or all that stuff i still think we should try to We should encourage it. When I have physicists talk about the universe on my TikTok for you page and like particles and everything, I'm so fascinated. Like I love that when like we have good science communication about physics or biology and
0: well, that's interesting because hard topics. That's an interesting spectrum that I hadn't considered before because you're right. Like physicists, it's almost so abstract that you're Mm -hmm. captivated in the same way that like psychology captivates you because it's so intimate. It's like, oh,
1: that's a, yeah. you
0: know, like, you're yeah. so far removed from it that there's this wa- wonder and awe. Yeah. And then with psychology, you're like, yeah, that's me. And I kind of intuitively knew that or I'm surprised I yeah. <laughs> knew that. But then you think about, like, biology and it's basically, like, CP325 does, you know, yes. genetically. It's, like, it's it's fucking the worst. I I failed at choosing my professions.
1: Biology is really tough to communicate unless it, like, has some implications. Like, exercise is good for your brain or alcohol is good for your whatever like that's the stuff that i feel like gets communicated in the popular press but some of it is so niche and it's tough and um yeah it's true the physics gets at the b- abstract wonder and psychology i feel like psychology studies always have like a set number of reactions like, this proves what i knew all along haha yeah. the science proves it the science proves that my political opponents are stupid or that whatever like something that i wanted to believe or people will yeah. say oh that doesn't sound right that must be like a bad study because that disagrees with my priors or or people will like something because it's surprising like wow that's so cool so you kind of get the set of like three reactions to yeah you do articles
0: yeah you get the positive negative and like yeah the i don't care or neutral yeah
1: yeah or like that's so obvious why did they have to do a study about it it's
0: like That's my favorite. Like my, (laughs) on my other podcast, my co-host always says stuff like that. He's like, I don't understand why they do. I'm like, the the only reason we can say this now definitively is because somebody did like 10. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fun stuff though. But yeah, I, I think about like the social media stuff so much because it's, it's just fascinating to kind of like watch people. Have you looked into like the lives at all on TikTok?
1: Yeah. And I've done a few TikTok lives as well. And I think they're really fun. Yeah. And have you seen people doing the matches and stuff? Oh, yeah, where people do those, like, tournaments against each other? Is that what um, you're talking about? Yeah, those are weird. I don't quite get those. Mm-hmm. I'm not. Oh, yeah, I what did, you, like, what, a deep what you... dive.
0: You'll have to watch okay. episode eight of my other podcast, Syllogism, on last season. Because that was one of, we do a challenge every week. And the challenge was to go live on TikTok. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and wow it's a whole other world and then because of that i actually looked into kind of like the gifting aspect of tiktok mm-hmm. and like how much you know what's the exchange the currency exchange and it was very obscure and hard to find the information but doesn't i doesn't
1: tiktok take like 70 percent isn't it something yes. like absurd I, like yes. that and yeah. i think
0: i'm the person who actually made that popular understanding the actual percentage of it because wait really um, yeah i think so. number I
1: originate say- from you 66 wow. points yeah did you post a tiktok six. about this how did this like, i did out there? yeah oh so yeah. i assume that went viral then
0: it did but it mostly went viral because people were mad at me you i thought it would be like people are so glad they know like i didn't realize i was pouring all my money into it but i had million plus creators coming and being like you're just jealous you're not getting enough like you're greedy but i did kind of have a hook that Sometimes I say shit really sounds bad. My husband's like, your delivery sucks because I was in a live and it was like on ABC media or something. And I'm watching people gift ABC, you know, they're gifting money. And so I took a screenshot of like the people at the top because it shows like the top gifters. And I said, if this is you, if you're a top gifter, I'm not following you. And like... I know it was a little like aggressive, but it was like, and then I tried to be like concerned. I'm like, here's why. Cause like, I don't want you to throw your money away on me or anyone else, you know? But yeah, yeah that's a good like,
1: hook though. I mean,
0: if you're a villain, TikTok
1: incentivizes like controversial hooks. You always have to start with like a little bit of like controversy or intrigue or whatever. I mean, it's definitely a strategy that works if you're able to withstand the backlash. Like, oh, I'm I... always
0: the villain, always.
1: Okay. <laughs> I love it. Villain era. Like, that, that's great. Life, that's life. Villain
0: life. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's an approach, yeah. I think I wouldn't be able to do that. I wouldn't be able to, like, withstand. I, sometimes I keep my hooks, like, mildly controversial or intriguing, but I, I want to avoid being trolled on social media.
0: Oh, dude. And, and, me. I mean, it's
1: really a shame that we have to, like, worry about that. I think the internet creates really bad trolling dynamics where people will yeah. all go after one person. And I think we live in constant fear that, like, if we say something in the wrong way, especially if you have a bit of a platform or if you engage with the public, that people will troll you. It's oh, kind of yeah. scary. And I think it's not a great dynamic. I just read this book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. It was, like, it was really good. We actually read it from my lab book club. Like, my, la- my postdoc lab has a book club that's Preparing really fun. for it? Yes, preparing to be publicly shamed. And he talks about it was... it was written like a few years ago so it was talked about all these cases where people got publicly shamed like justine sacco was like a case where she made like a kind of a bad joke on the internet and she had 140 twitter followers and then she went on an 11 hour plane ride and she got off the plane and she was trending on twitter the entire internet was against her she lost her job it was like a whole and sort of for making a bad joke that was pretty like, it was like a distasteful joke, but even for like offensive jokes, you don't necessarily deserve that or think that your joke will be seen by the entire world. She had 140 followers and John Ronson was sort of arguing that the internet is creating these dynamics where we're kind of like afraid to be provocative anymore or where like it's incentivizing this kind of, kind of this neutrality and this fearful way of putting things. Unless you are certain figures like Donald Trump or Elon Musk who kind of live for the outrage and you lean into the negative attention. We do have figures like that. But then for a lot of us, we lean into like the, okay, I will, I will avoid saying potentially controversial things. And you have to sort of frame what you're saying so the anyone from any walk of life from the entire world might not misinterpret you. It sort of eliminates context where like someone yeah. might have the context to understand what you're saying. Is an offensive but someone else might take that what you're saying completely out of context so
0: well this is the thing it's creating a global monoculture basically Mm -hmm. and the people the figures like you know me or you know anybody Mm -hmm. who's incendiary it's not that we're villains it's that we're speaking to a certain type of person and that is almost shameful now you're not allowed to speak to certain types of people unless you're certain types of people then that's fine but if you kind of isolate your audience and say, I'm I'm only talking to these people, let's use Elon Musk. He has a way of doing things that is his own way. And he's being criticized now for doing things the Elon Musk way that everybody loved a while ago. And I think a lot of this is like the anti-billionaire sentiment as well, like the anti-capitalist. They're looking for anything to bury these people. But...
1: But I do think Elon Musk has generally made some bad decisions recently. Like, I think he has Twitter brain, basically. Twitter brain is like when Twitter becomes your world and you're way too affected by the incentives. Literally. I I mean, I think he's always been a risk taker. And I think becoming more of a billionaire gives him enough financial security where he can become enough of a risk taker. Honestly, his psychology is so confusing to me because for a while I was like, oh, whatever he's doing, maybe it's part of his calculated genius. But slowly I'm like, no he is just really impulsive and a risk taker and i don't know i think the myth of elon musk as a genius is just like fallen apart for so many people there are some people still holding on to that belief but
0: well it's not to say he's yeah. not a genius in his own right but it's like same thing with kanye right like kanye like and it's like you know we talk about michael jackson and all these kind of figures who are we get closer and closer to our heroes or people that we uh-huh. consider brilliant and, and it all falls apart. You're like, oh, my God, you're anti-Semitic. You know, like, <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, you, you are cool with slave labor. Like, what? Yeah. No, um, it's absurd.
1: Yeah, I remember the- back in, like, when I first got to Stanford, how impressive I thought Elizabeth Holmes was. I was, she's so, was she shame. dropped out when she was just a sophomore. Like, maybe I can do that one day. Like, it was... And now just to see that crashing down, I think she just epitomizes how much the tech world, because people did worship the tech world back in 2014. It's so interesting how that's like completely switched
0: over. Well, some people still do. I feel like Mm -hmm. I was reading Scott Alexander's blog, you know, Slate Star Codex. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. I know. I like that blog. Yeah, so he did these three kind of pieces. It's like a Silicon Valley party, and then another Silicon Valley party, and then yet another Silicon Valley party. <laughs> and it's kind of like showed the evolution of how these like parties have gone. And th- th- I feel like the the persona of like people who are still in Silicon Valley, who are still in tech and still doing these things is like it's morphed and changed. But this another that's another fascinating dynamic that I'm interested in. See, th- this is why... I feel like I couldn't be I couldn't stay in academic because I'm I'm too interested in all these different. I want to like peek mm-hmm. my head into all of them and mm-hmm. like and that's what I'm doing here with you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, and I'm I'm trying to do academia and the other things as well. We'll see if I we'll see if I can, but you but yeah, have more
0: control and restraint than I do. I could tell. Maybe some
1: t- I don't know, I don't know, but I've started like applying to like a few business schools for jobs because they hire a lot of psychologists. Kind of like how they interact with the companies in the world a bit more and stuff and i i really am interested in doing field experiments as well in my own research and doing things that are very applied and have implications i'm super passionate about social media that's what i study that's what i'm on that's what i do my tiktoks on so it's kind of a fit in that way but like my research interests are like very applied and things that i want to have an impact on like how tech companies operate and policies and regulations for social media companies and like The times when it found, like, my research to be most valuable is either when I've communicated to the public about it, or I've spoken to journalists about it, or I've seen people react to it, or one instance is when Facebook wrote, like, a press release criticizing one of our studies, and I was like, okay, Facebook has heard of our research, and they've listened to it, and they don't like it because we're critical of them, but at least we sort of make an impact on the public conversation about what Facebook is doing and what social media companies are incentivizing, so that shows that. Our research has some impact on the real world like that's the stuff that just keeps me inspired because i know that i'm like somehow interacting with these public conversations and real world things instead of just sort of writing writing these like theory papers that are only read by two people in a specific journal
0: yeah i think that there's certain aspects of academia that allow for more application and and integration Mm -hmm. and i think Mm -hmm. psychology could be one of those because i was looking i was like oh y'all got a grant from google for safety and misinformation that's Mm -hmm. interesting um whereas Biomedical sciences, in theory, has a lot of juxtaposition to pharma, but a lot of it is studying very basic science stuff that goes absolutely nowhere and spins wheels in uh-huh. a sense incrementally for decades. So I guess there's just different facets of the university that allow you to have more application. That's why this, the whole thing, is so vast a project to explore because there's just so many different pockets. But it'll be, I'm, I'm interested and fascinated with what you do, and and really curious to see how. How the shit plays out for you my friend
1: thank you we'll see fingers crossed that it plays that well and i'm curious to see what the future of neo-academia is it would yeah, be nice if too. we could just kind of blur that line between academia and non-academia and not make it such like an isolated
0: let's do it thing. Let's, let's hold hands for a minute
1: yes let's do it
0: oh okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> Thanks for joining us here on Neo-Academia. For next episode, we'll continue to explore the shifting walls of the Ivory Tower. You can see the full video of this episode on YouTube and sign up to receive episodes, show notes, readocracy collections, and bonus content straight to your inbox at theorygang.io.